Well, I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer if you are able, and join me in the book of Jude, otherwise known as the letter written by Jude to the church. Known as one of the general epistles because it doesn't have a particular audience. It doesn't have a, a church in a particular city, like Paul's letters to Corinth. And it doesn't have a letter written to a particular individual, like Paul's letters to Timothy or Titus. And so it's called a general epistle, written to all as we see there in the opening two verses. Let's read together this morning in what is the third week of our observation of this little letter. Let's read today through verse 7, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in. The Greek term there is similar to the term from which we get the word parasite. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ now verse 5 I want to remind you although you once fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we ask a very simple prayer. Uh, Lord, that what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And who we are not, would you make us? For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, be seated. We're going to be really, really Baptist today. 
We are sitting in pews, not chairs. We are in a sanctuary, not an auditorium. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness, and we're going to sit through a sermon about hell and judgment. (laughs) We're doing all the stereotypes today, friends. If you missed weeks one and two of this series through the letter of Jude, the introduction to this sermon is going to hit you like a like a cold pancake in the face. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not especially contextualized. But for the sake of time, uh, we must dive in. And I must compel you to go back into our podcast feed, which you can subscribe to on Apple and Spotify, and listen to these first two sermons. Or you can go back on our Facebook live feed and listen there. As we have been discussing, the role of the church is at least in part to contend for the faith, which means identifying falsehood for what it is, speaking out against it, and living in opposition to it. The next, if you will, installment of that understanding comes in verses 4 through 7. For certain people have crept in. Crept in what? Crept into the church of Jesus Christ. Ever since the very beginning of the church, seemingly, almost immediately, have people been attempting to creep into the church for the sake of material gain. The earliest example of this is found not in some ancient church history document, but right there in the book of Acts. A mere couple of years into the church's existence, wealthy businessmen were selling their businesses or selling their lands, donating their fortunes to this new church, this budding community of the followers of the way, as they were called at the time, after Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. And during this early period, there was this community of Jewish converts living in and around Jerusalem because the question was, we believe we were cut to the heart, thousands saved a mere six weeks after Jesus' crucifixion. The church goes from 120 faithful prayers to 3,000 and growing every day. And so all of these Jewish converts who converged from all over the Roman Empire on Jerusalem, they said, well, what do we do now? And it was like, I don't know, Jesus didn't really tell us. (laughs) I guess we'll stay here and be a community. And so those who had much sold what they had, gave what they had to the apostles, and those who had very little were aided. And that's what we read in the early chapters of Acts. That everyone had all things in common. So no one went without. 
And right here, the first temptation to creep in for material gain manifested itself in the story of a husband and wife. They said, apparently, to each other, I'm commentating now, not quoting scripture. They said, have you seen where Joe sits at the meals? Joe sits up with the apostles. He was just two seats away from the apostle Peter. Yeah. Uh, Have you seen where Bob sits? (laughs) Bob sits on the other side of James, Jesus' brother. Why are we all the way down here? To which the husband says, well, probably because we haven't given a whole bunch of money like those guys have. Those guys sold land, they sold businesses, they gave everything they had, and now they're sitting at the head table. Well, what do you say we sell our stuff and we give it away? Well, we could do that, or, or we could sell it, give half, and keep half. No one will know except me and you, right? The apostles will think we sold everything we have and gave them all the money. I'll be at the head table, and we'll still have a nest egg. We'll be elevated in the eyes of the people, And yet we'll still have our security blanket just in case this whole thing is a bunch of malarkey. Their names? Come on, go ahead, who knows it? Okay, for those of you who don't know, that was Ananias and Sapphira, yeah. Yeah. Certain people have crept in to pervert the gospel. Now, of course, they were thwarted. Why? Well, because the apostles were like, um, the Holy Spirit just told me that you're lying because the apostles had that type of a role and a duty in the life of the church. They were unique in their calling to establish the church upon which Jesus built. Ananias and Sapphira, of course, didn't succeed. Uh, I don't know what the church did with the money. Uh, that they gave, uh, but they dropped dead where they stood in their lies. Why? Because there was a precedent that needed to be set. You lie to the Holy Spirit, you attempt to creep in, judgment will follow. Fast forward 2,000 years and the church has been riddled with such creepers in ever since. The subject of today's observation as to those who have crept in will be surrounding the notion of Mary worship. Mary worship or the Marian veneration, the veneration of the mother of Jesus in the flesh, Mary. It is perhaps the most effective and longest-lasting heresy perpetuated on the church. We talked last week about Marcion. Remember him? The Gnostic heresy that he spread in the second century? 
He was the son of a pastor. He was preaching in the church at Rome for about 10 years before he was excommunicated for his false teaching. And yet, Marcionite churches popped up all over the Roman Empire and wrapped people up in the Gnostic heresy for 150 years. The Gnostic heresy was combated by Paul's teaching and the early church fathers. Just by way of reminder, it assaulted the personhood of Jesus. Son of God, Son of Man. Divine yet born. Eternal yet incarnate, crucified, resurrected once for all. That's a complex union. The complex identity of Jesus took some time to formalize in church writing. Not that his identity needed to be crafted, rather the precise language used when discussing his nature needed to be made clear. And it was made clear by combating falsehoods that were being spread about him. The Gnostic heretics used this this complexity of identity as an opportunity to weave their webs of deception from the very beginning. While church fathers Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, and others were fine-tuning the language about the personhood of Jesus so that we could say it clearly, early heretics like Marcion thrust themselves into the public conversation to undercut a clear understanding of who he is. Their goal, specifically, was to make Jesus less than fully man. So they perpetuated a docetic or Gnostic heresy that Jesus was more like a ghost. He wasn't totally man. He couldn't have been man and flesh. He was, he was a, a ghost, a spirit. And so Tertullian writes in response, a document called On the Flesh of Christ, where in it he asks this question. Dad, I feel like my mic is booming just a pinch. And I, I just, I, I don't want to continue to be distracted or potentially create the distraction. So thank you, you're a wizard back there. All right, Tertullian writes, on the flesh of Christ, where in it he asks, why is Christ man and the son of man if he has nothing of man and nothing from man? Okay, so just pause right there. We're only halfway through the quote. The second part's more confusing than the first. <laughs> Do you see the question? Why is Jesus called the son of man if he has nothing from man and is nothing of man? It's a specific response to this Gnostic notion that Jesus wasn't fully man. So he goes on in his response, unless it be either that man is anything else than flesh, or man's flesh comes from any other source than man, or Mary is anything else than a human being. See, to combat the attack on Jesus' identity as a real man who really lived, who really bled, who really died, who was also somehow simultaneously truly divine and truly eternal, 
In order to combat this attack on Jesus' identity, Mary's life and her humanity was brought in as a, if you will, an element of the argumentation. Mary was really made of flesh, and Mary really birthed Jesus in the flesh. Justin Martyr picks up the same concept in a document called Dialogue with Trifo, and he writes, Jesus became man by the virgin in order that the disobedience which proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner in which it derived its origin. Hang with me. You can do it. For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, okay, notice that that, that's very illustrative language. She conceived the word of the serpent and brought forth disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her, that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the highest would overshadow her. Wherefore also, the holy thing begotten to her, begotten of her, is the Son of God. And she replied, be it unto me according to your word. So do you see the illustration Justin is is making? Eve gave birth to the word of the serpent. What was birthed? Sin and death, disobedience. Mary gave birth to the word of the angel, the promise that the Most High would overshadow you and you will conceive and give birth to a son who will be called Jesus, the Son of God. And so what's he doing? Well, with these two quotes, what we're observing is the tactics of the church fathers to combat the Gnostic heresy attacking the humanity of Jesus. Are you with me so far? Because if you're not, it only gets harder from here. Jesus was born of a woman, therefore he was human. This was the argument. In fact, his humanness, Justin Martyr says, is part of God's mirror-imaged plan to restore what was lost in the garden. From the woman, from the woman. You see? It's a great picture. In fact, this type of early argumentation is called recapitulation. It's where the early church fathers sought to, to couch all things in human history as, a, as, as God restoring what was lost in the garden. And it's consistent and it's theologically sound. Recapitulation. However, one unintended side effect of this emphasis on Mary's crucial role in God's plan is that heretics would later pick up, if you will, this chink in the armor and use it to perpetuate a new heresy, Mary worship. One such occasion would be a few hundred years after those quotes that I just read to you, after those things were written, a man by the name of Socrates of Constantinople was combating the claims of another man named Nestorius. And to do so, he quotes the early church father 
Origen. So this is a fifth century pastor quoting a second century who's what are called church fathers. The teacher of teachers, Origen is called, saying that Origen used a term for Mary, theotakos. That sounds an awful lot like my lunch last week. If you haven't been to the new place right across the street, I cannot pronounce the name. Um, the, the, uh, the, the touchpad, like the, where you pay, it's all in Spanish, right? So bone up. But man, the tacos. <laughs> the tacos are excellent. We don't have time for any more things like that, okay? Socrates says... Origen called Mary Theotokos, which is a Greek term that means mother of God. Socrates of Constantinople said Origen wrote that in his commentaries on the apostolic epistle to the Romans. Here's the big problem. We have a complete set of Origen's commentaries on Romans that have survived since the earliest of days. And in no point does he use this term referring to Mary as the mother of God. But because Socrates essentially introduced this notion and attributed it to someone as renowned as Origen, it became gospel. The damage was done, if you will. Oh, mother of God. Well, that carries with it some cachet. You know what I'm saying? So Nestorius goes, I'm hearing this new term for Mary that I think is not good. I'm, I'm summarizing, okay? Calling her the mother of God in order to establish Jesus' divinity uh, and his humanity is a dangerous precedent. Let's call her mother of Christ instead so that we can sort of distinguish between the, the father, the, the seed of the father, which is spirit, and the fleshly womb of the mother, which is human. Let's call her mother of Christ, not mother of God. That, that's, that's a dangerous precedent makes her sound greater than God. So Socrates of Constantinople didn't like this. He made up a quote, attributed it to Origen, and then worked with the Pope and a man by the name of Cyril of Alexandria, and he writes 12 anathemas against Nestorius, calling him a heretic, Then the council of Ephesus convened and excommunicated this man, Nestorius. The man who says, this is a dangerous precedent, has been excommunicated by the Pope and by a liar. Verse four, certain people have crept in. From this point forward, we're talking about 5th century. From this point forward, heretics would seize onto the title Mother of God in a new effort to undermine Jesus. No longer were the Gnostics trying to convince the church that Jesus was just a spirit, he was just a ghost. No, the church fathers, verse 3, contended for the faith and defeated that heresy. 
Now they seized onto the claim, the title Mary, Mother of God, and began to promote prayers to Mary instead of prayers offered directly to God. What began as an emphasis to legitimize the personhood of Jesus was twisted into idolatry. Fast forward 500, 600 years, and this subtle shift, it's, if you will, it's one degree off in the fifth century. But as you follow that trajectory one degree offline, 500 years in the future, and suddenly the church is grossly off base. That's how it works, right? Heard a story about a man, he was uh, building a fence with his father when he was little. His dad said, here, this is, this is the length of fence posts. Cut them all to this length. And so son goes, okay, and he grabs that, and he puts it there on the, on the, on the, the uncut fence post, and he cuts to that length, and then he carries one to the dad. Dad says, good, give me another. He goes back, put that on there, huh? The next cut, carry it to dad. But you know what happened? Each time, what he carried to his dad was the last measuring stick. And so each time he moved the measuring stick and brought it back to the one that he cut and then used the one that he cut to cut the next one, they were getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and eventually the fence was just going downhill. What happened? He didn't go back to the reference point. He was off just a degree in the beginning, but by the end... It was a mess. That's what happened to the church between the years of essentially 500 and 1100 AD. Off just a, a touch. But all it took was certain people to creep in and excommunicate the man who was championing truth for this absolute abomination to completely take hold of the church. Between 500 and 1100 AD, quote, the veneration of Mary would continue to increase. Devotional practices would be oriented towards Mary. Theologians would continue to make even bolder claims about Mary's importance. Monasteries especially would introduce worship practices to appeal to Mary. So this is where the priests are trained, modern day seminaries. What we've observed here in the fifth century is the first bud that would eventually bloom into full, high Marian veneration during the Middle Ages, end quote. She would begin to be referred to as the Queen of Heaven. Religious art depicting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit crowning Mary would be put on display. The Catholic Church to this day still promotes Mary worship prayers to Mary and upholds the statement of the Council of Trent that says salvation by grace through faith is insufficient. To say so is anathema. They still hold up that. They have not retracted that statement or offered a counterstatement to this day. And 1.3 billion people worldwide presently are caught up in this web of deception and heresy, otherwise known as the Roman Catholic Church. What's the big deal about praying to Mary, though? I mean, she was the mother of Jesus. I mean, she was obviously pretty cool, right? What's the big deal? 
MacArthur puts it this way in a conversation. So this is not like sophisticated language. Imagine you're having a conversation and the man answers your question. Praying to Mary strikes a blow against the gracious character of God and Christ. The idea is that God is full of wrath and you don't want to go directly to him. He's preoccupied, indifferent, transcendent. And you don't want to go directly to Jesus because he can be pretty tough too. Just read the Gospels. So pray to Mary because Jesus can't resist the request of his mother. And the father can't resist the request of the son. So go to Mary. Where was that again in the scriptures? I've, I seem to have lost that one. The idea of praying to Mary is an absolute assault on the saving nature of God. It's an assault on his very name, where in Exodus, God describes himself as full of compassion and forgiveness. This is an assault on the scriptures where we read there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. R.C. Sproul says it's a gross act of idolatry to be praying to Mary and to the saints. The church in Rome has categorically, consistently, and clearly denied the gospel. No matter all the other good things they do, this qualifies the church in Rome as a church. It is an apostate body. Therefore, every true Christian has a moral obligation to leave that communion and align themselves with a, essentially a real church. Now, alongside the veneration of Mary that began around 500 AD and really ramped up through 1100 AD, it just became essentially established practice by that point. Alongside of it, the conduct of the priesthood got uglier and uglier. Lavish lifestyles funded by the tithes of fearful saints and sexual immorality became the norm among the priesthood. So much so that a survey of the early Middle Ages reveals a popular sentiment in Europe called anti-clericalism. Why? Because of the hypocrisy. So hold on. Why were the people of Europe so put off by the clergy of the church? Was it because of the Mary worship? Not really. It wasn't so much the doctrine, it was the lifestyle. It was the fear-mongering, the greed, the gluttony, the materialism, the lavish lifestyles, and the sexual morality. As soon as Mary worship crept in, materialism, gluttony, and perversion came alongside. Europeans in the Middle Ages knew it, even the nobles, but what could be done? Quote, the church held the keys to one's eternal destination. The alternative was an eternity in the torments of hell or a stay in the fires of purgatory where one's sins were burned away. So through fear-mongering, they kept the people subservient while they fattened themselves on the people's tithes and robbed the people of truth. That's around 1100 AD. Fast forward another 400 or so years and the same church councils that called Nestorius a heretic are killing early reformers such as Jan Hus, 
burned at the stake by his writings because he challenged the lavish lifestyle and the teaching of the, the church. Meanwhile, Pope Leo X toasts guests on Good Friday in 1514 saying, how well we know what a profitable superstition this fable of Christ has been for us and our predecessors. Oddly enough, every depiction of him historically, he's a rather large man, well-fed, not working super hard, eating well and sitting around getting fat and happy on the tithes of the people of God. Fast forward another 500 years, and between the years of 2001 and 2010, 3,000 Catholic priests were discovered to have molested children under their care, some doing so for more than 50 years of service in the church. Certain men have crept in. Now, you might ask yourself, as we go through this survey of church history, why, why would these men do this? Why creep into the church? Why try to undercut the personhood of Jesus? Why promote and fabricate these false doctrines? Why seek to steer the church away? Why not just do your own thing if you wanna get fat, rich, happy, and sleep with everything that breathes? Why not just do your own thing? Well, there's a reason. They long for sensuality. Sensuality is the Greek word agoleos. It basically means brazen, open, shameless debauchery. Not trying to hide it, just letting it flow, just right out there. It's essentially the month of June in our culture. And I I don't say that as a joke. I mean, it's, it's that type of, that's what the word implies, that type of overt, unashamed celebration of debauchery. That's what they want. As long as the church says this is wrong and immoral, these men cannot slick their lusts. So what do they do? Creep in, redefine the church, and work to change church doctrine and church practice to permit their sensuality. They pervert the gospel into sensuality. Not only sexual depravity, but also every aspect of fleshy desire. They are greedy for gain. They are manipulative like the serpent. They are sexually perverse and they know what they're doing. They are often also charismatic, charming, handsome like your pastor, good with words, good with, sorry, I couldn't help myself. It was too serious, it was too heavy. They're often charismatic and charming and handsome and good with words and good with crowds. MacArthur puts it simply when asked, why do these men do this? He says, simply they see an easy way to money. And it's true. They see an easy way for what Peter 
forbids in the clergy to be eager for shameful gain, 1 Peter 5, 2. One local heretic is the pastor of a church. His net worth is 55 million. He's about my age. He hosted a friend recently to speak at his church. His net worth was 20 million. There's a guy down in Houston, very popular on the TV, net worth 100 million. Now, there's one of these guys uh, who's alive today who's been in the game longer than all the rest. His net worth is 760 million. Just faithful servants of the gospel. I don't know for sure, but I doubt any of these men have ever given an exposition of the letter of Jude. They would expose themselves. Some of these men are even in the Southern Baptist Convention, leading one of our church elders to ask me recently, why would the Southern Baptist Convention align with these guys? To which the answer is simple. Well, they attended the seminaries, they got established, and then steered the ship according to their wishes. They came in undercover, which is why the title of today's sermon has been staring at you in the face for a few moments now, Covert Warfare. They came in undercover. Here's the key. Wicked men with evil intentions have used the privileges the church afforded them to enrich themselves and satisfy their cravings. That's the headline. It's not snappy, but that's the headline. Wicked men with evil intentions used the privileges afforded them to enrich themselves and satisfy their cravings. That's the point of Jude 4 through 7. Wicked men with evil intentions use the privileges afforded to them to enrich themselves and satisfy their cravings. To illustrate this principal truth of Satan's tactics, Jude relies on history to educate us. So if you're taking notes, here comes a three-part sermon and six points of application in 10 minutes. Get ready. If you think I'm kidding, I'm not. It comes fast. Number one, the first illustration Jude uses to make this point is the people of God. Verse five. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, which is of course interesting enough in itself, right? It was Jesus who saved them because Jesus is the savior. But Jesus is God. Uh-huh. Right? Just, just worship. Don't try to make it work. You can't fit it in your little brain. It's amazing. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So the first illustration is the people of God. In Exodus, God delivered his people, the descendants of Jacob, from Egyptian slavery. He did so through a mighty display of power, culminating in the death of the firstborn of every living creature in the Egyptian empire known as the Passover. It would be the beginning of Israel's calendar. It would be the most identifiable moment in their history forever in perpetuity. It's the quintessential identifying marker of the Jewish people. They were rescued through the Passover. Everyone reading Jude's letter would know the story well. And if they know the story well, then they know what happens next. 
Well, first of all, within a few weeks, the people reject God, reject his servant Moses, worship a golden calf, and 3,000 die in one day, and another 20-some-odd thousand would die later on. Fast forward one year. God says, take the land of Canaan. I promised it to Abraham. I'm giving it to you. They doubt, they grumble, and they reject God's instructions, and an entire generation is sentenced to death, probably something like a million Maybe a million and a half Hebrews would die in the judgment of God for their rejection of him after experiencing, listen, the privilege of his rescue. That's the key. That's the first example. They took a privileged position as God's chosen people and they rejected him, so he judged them. Illustration number two, the angels of heaven. Verse six, and the angels <clears throat> who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Many of you know the illusion Judah's making. The Hebrews who received this letter would have certainly known. I think it's Genesis six, I forgot to check. Genesis 6 describes an account that Jude obviously takes literally. The angels of God, created to enjoy the privilege of his company and service, left their proper place, their station, and laid with human women, intimately. How is this possible? I don't know. I just know that the Bible states it clearly. Jude references it as a fact, and every historical record inside and outside of the Bible makes references to these part-human, part-divine heroes of the ancient world. There are Greek myths that reference this Hebrew story. You know, Achilles, Brad Pitt, you know? Great movie. It's one moment that's a little dicey, uh, mom and dad, so it's not a full endorsement. <clears throat> Where was I? How did God respond to these angels leaving their proper dwelling? He judged them. He has kept them bound in chains until he will judge them on the last day when Satan and all of his minions and even death itself are cast into the lake of fire for eternity. It is essentially the, uh, the plan of God completed. They took a privileged position and leveraged it to satisfy themselves so God judged them. Illustration number three, the Gentile nations. You'll notice by these three categories, essentially all of, creative, all of creation is covered. The Hebrews, the angels, and now the Gentiles. These are non-Hebrew people referenced in verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by go undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is well known. Abraham's nephew Lot chose to live in this valley that within it held the city of Sodom. It was beautiful, it was lush, it was fertile, it was excellent for life, abundant, if you will, in God's beauty on creation. But the people there 
who lived there took God's creation for granted. They enjoyed the blessing of this fertile plain but rejected his rules for life and purity. The overwhelming sin of the people was homosexuality. This was made plain and clear when two angels sent by God came into the city to remove Lot and his family. The men of the city demanded Lot give over these two visitors so that they could have relations with them. Lot offers his daughters in an attempt to satisfy the men's cravings in a gross and abhorrent attempt to appease them. But these men would not be satisfied with the natural intimacy of a woman. They had one thing on their mind. Nothing else would satisfy their craving. And so, God rained fire from heaven and devoured them. God judged them. Like the cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah enjoyed a privileged position, enjoyed the blessings of God and creation, but used them to defile themselves and reject God's rules for life. And so God judged them. What's the point? Number one, God will do the same to these pastors, priests, seminary professors, and faith healers who use and abuse his blessings to satisfy their material and sexual desires. And they will deserve it. They are the spawn of Satan. They are not misguided. Just as God judged, he will judge. That's the first point. Second point, the elders of God's church are not permitted to teach what we want. But like the prophets of old, we are commanded to teach what God says, nothing more, nothing less. And you can see by the veneration of Mary how a slightly askew gospel, a slightly askew teaching, a clever idea can take the church off, if you will, the absolute cliff to destruction. So God will do the same. Number one, the elders of God's church are not permitted to teach what we want. Number two, and number three, we must expect the presence of apostates in the church. We should expect it. We should not be surprised when we see it, and we should certainly not be duped by it. It's always been here. It's never not been here. We should expect it. We must be vigilant against this long-standing covert warfare. They're not coming at you, obviously. They are coming at you with deceptive schemes. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When you were saved, you were drafted into the army of God, and I'm sorry if you were told otherwise at your conversion. You are called into a battle. It is a battle that does not necessarily rise and fall on you, but as a member of God's kingdom and his family, you are compelled to lock arms and wage war, to participate in the long war against God. You must test the teaching of men against the scriptures, including everything that I say, And you must examine the way of life of teachers of the Bible above their persuasiveness. 
Persuasiveness is uh, not an excuse for materialism, greed, gluttony, and perversion. I, I wrote this next sentence at the beginning of the week and I asked the Lord to tell me and help me uh, and you know, uh, convict me if, uh, if it, it needs to not be read. And it stayed in my notes all week and here it is now. So it's coming out. Uh, we must be willing to admit that there are those among the church of Jesus Christ who are not well-intentioned, they are not misguided, they are not confused, they are in it for selfish gain, they are the spawn of Satan, their intentions are evil, their motivations are destructive, and the people of God have a duty to say so. So go be happy. Okay, then how do we contend? Right? Six points of application. Here they come. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Be ruthless about your own potential towards selfishness. Be ruthless evaluators of your own motives. Beg the Lord along with King David to search you and know you and expose to you the sin lying dormant in your life that wants to ruin you. Be ruthless. Give no quarter to the flesh is the way that Paul puts it. Do not take for granted the privileged position that God has given you, affluent church of the 21st century Americas. But instead pray, Lord, search me and know me. That's the first thing. Number two comes from Nehemiah chapter four, where we read, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. That's our, that's our calling, church to build with one hand and wield the sword with the other. This is our duty, to defend the faith, to contend for the faith. We should note that critically, the swords and spears of Nehemiah's workers as they built the walls were not used for offense, only for defense. We don't wield the sword of God to conquer the world. We wield the sword of faith to spread the gospel, to combat falsehood, to defend against Satan's advances those whom he would take for his own. It's defensive. The next few come rapid fire. Okay, so we've got be ruthless evaluators of your own potential. Build with one hand, wield the sword with the other. Number three, know your Bible. It's really hard to pull the wool over your eyes if you know your scriptures. It's as simple as that. Know your Bible. Number four, support faithful pastors and teachers. If you find someone who's doing it right, support them. 
you know? Number five, give unflinching witness to God's truth. This is the idea of just living it. If you believe it, live it. Live in purity. Live in generosity. Live in the light. Expose your own sinfulness to your friend, your brother in Christ, your pastor. Say, hey, I'm struggling. Live in the light. Walk in the integrity of your heart with a clear conscience before God and man. Nothing short of that will give testimony to the truth you say you believe. So live it. Give unflinching witness to God's truth. Number six, don't take your privileged position for granted. You're part of a church family that stands on the word of God without compromise. Be glad. You have access to millions and millions of hours of faithful Bible teaching from some of the greatest preachers of the modern era in the palm of your hand. So why are you binging the next show on Netflix? Don't take for granted the privileged position that you've been given. You are part of the wealthiest economy literally in human history. Use it for God's glory, not your own materialism. In heaven you will receive the unfading crown of glory which dwarfs all the riches of this life. The words, well done, good and faithful servant, are more valuable than all the wealth, all the pleasantries, all the notoriety of men. They're worth more than any earthly good Satan will tempt you with. So seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Settle for nothing less than the greatest of glories and the greatest of treasures in heaven. We'll stop there. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Where we are uh, finding all things pertaining to life and godliness, we're finding all things. There are scriptures that speak encouraging words over us. They remind us of our being kept in the palm of Jesus. There are scriptures that portray your kindness and your goodness as our shepherd and our father as you lead us by still waters for nourishment. And then there are scriptures like these that warn us and compel us to contend for the faith, to combat falsehood, to call a spade a spade, and to recognize that we serve a God who is loving and gracious and compassionate. But we also serve a God who is perfectly just. And along with that justice comes consequence. And so Lord, grieve our hearts for those who are on the broad path to destruction embolden our words to combat falsehood and share the true gospel and encourage us on a morning that might otherwise bring us down. We love you and we trust you. Help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for a closing song.